he realized the the pain that he caused so many people over the years. And there's just something about what happens in our lives when we actually put down the armor in the front that's that's shielding us. Hey, what's going on, everyone? I'm Jack, and welcome to This Cavu Life. Have you ever visited a place that just brought an overwhelming sense of emotion from any point of the spectrum? Happy, joyful, sad, angry, frustrated, you name it. But being in the presence of that place just really filled your body with emotion. If you guys have been following Last week, I made a dry run to Alabama with the van. I was initially hoping to at least be able to sleep in the van um, come December 31st. And it was an arbitrary date that I picked because, one, I needed a degree of accountability. And two, I'm just hitting van build fatigue I've been building the van for about five months now and just hitting that that wall of, all right, this has been fun. It's been a great learning experience. It's been a journey, but I'm now ready to be in the van and get on with it. Unfortunately, I'm not there quite yet getting there, but not not entirely ready to uh, to be full time. So... I needed to do a quick run to make sure I didn't lose the solar panels. I didn't have a cabinet that fell off, made sure all of the locks and the the hinges on the cabinets stayed in place. And really just, you know, I needed a, a moment to, to disconnect from the build process and, and breathe. And I have some really good friends in Birmingham and, I've been talking to them and they said, hey, come on over for, for New Year's Eve. So I did that. But I'm not really familiar with the state of Alabama as a whole in terms of where I should go, what I should see, what I should visit. Being right next door here in Georgia, in high school, um, we would make a lot of trips for sports and band competitions to get to some of the the Florida Gulf Coast beaches. You have to drive through Southern Alabama. So I have a little bit of experience there, but none in terms of must-sees and places I should go. And I wanted to go off the beaten path and not go off of a guidebook. So I asked my friends, where should I go? And they gave me a couple locations off of I-20. If you're not familiar with Alabama and Georgia, I-20 is the major interstate that runs or that takes you from Atlanta to Birmingham. And so it's about, I don't know, two and a half, three hours between the two cities. And about an hour and a half into the drive, there's a town called Anniston, Alabama. And I should probably know a little bit of history of this town, but call it ignorance, call it naivety. So before I hit the road, I did a little bit of uh, due diligence and, and researched the town, and it was first known um, for its cast iron sewer system. It also was the first city in the state of Alabama to be lit by electricity, but for the most part, it was known for 
1961 Freedom Riders uh, attack. If you're not too familiar with the history, in 1961, a group of civil rights activists known as the Freedom Riders began a desegregation campaign. They were a interracial group that rode together on interstate buses headed south from Washington, D.C., all the way through various towns in the south, ending in New Orleans. Um, and the mission of the campaign was to test the enforcement of Supreme Court decisions that prohibited the discrimination in interstate passenger travel. And this campaign was not really popular with white Southerners who supported segregation. And in 1961, that was the majority. But even getting to the point where these folks got on the bus and hit the road, the process to select the Freedom Riders, it was pretty lengthy think you had to be over 21. If you were under 21, you had to have parental consent. You had to have nominations and referrals from civic leaders, pastors, teachers, um, and you needed to have a temperament that could also withstand the potential abuse that you would receive on this journey. Leading up to the actual uh, freedom ride, they went through, I want to say, four to six weeks of training, understanding constitutional law, understanding their rights with law enforcement, and also building up a tolerance for the physical abuse that they may receive, having coffee poured on them, being spit at, being punched, being attacked, and building up the emotional and mental mental fortitude to withstand that. Well, on Mother's Day, May 14th, 1961, a Greyhound bus carrying Freedom Riders arrived at Anniston, Alabama. And the Greyhound bus station, which is, I want to say about a street over from Noble Square, which is their main drag. And when they arrived, they found the Greyhound bus depot locked. The leader of the KKK had 50 men with him that were armed with pipes and chains and bats. And ultimately, this group smashed windows, they slashed tires, they dented the sides of the bus. And hours before the bus had arrived, I believe another bus had warned this one about what they might encounter when they got to Anniston. And the police even knew that the bus was coming in, they saw the mob, and the police did not show up until after the assault had begun. When you go to visit this bus depot, it's now a historical landmark, but there is an incredibly beautiful mural that has been drawn, and they do a great job of walking you through the historical timeline, the preamble, how the folks were selected, what led up to the first day, and then the experience on the bus, and then the outcome of that day. And the the Freedom 
riders, their tour in general. After I, I visited that, that site for a solid 30 plus minutes, I went to the Freedom Riders Park. So the bus endured all sorts of abuse, like I said, slash tires, but it still left the depot. And they had a police escort until they met city limit lines. And then the police no longer followed the bus, but the mob of 50 were right there. And the bus, because they had slashed tires, eventually the bus driver needed to pull over to try to change one of the tires. And that's when the mob attacked and they ended up setting the bus on fire and got off the bus. They were ultimately beaten. And I went to visit that site of where the bus was uh, set afire. And between those those two locations, it invoked all sorts of emotions in me. Compassion and pride for the folks that had the courage to even get on the bus, knowing what they were going to potentially endure once they hit the South. Anger at the folks in the mob who met them and attacked them and beat them. Anger at the police, whose job it is, is to protect citizens. Sadness, because we have all of this hate and vitriol towards folks that simply because they don't look like us. Um, and anger, I mean, mostly anger. And anger is a really hard but easy emotion for me. It's easy for me to feel, but it's hard for me to articulate. And as I was journaling this experience in Aniston on New Year's Eve, I randomly flipped to a page with a quote from Brene Brown. And it reads, Strong back, soft front, wild heart. And the quote initially was strong back, soft front, originally came from Roshi Jones Halifax, and Brene Brown added wild heart when she was writing one of her her books. But the extended version of that quote I would like to read, and I hope you guys, or I hope you all entertain me with with this, but she writes, All too often, our so-called strength comes from fear, not love. Instead of having a strong back, many of us have a defended front, shielding a weak spine. In other words, we walk around brittle and defensive, trying to conceal our lack of confidence. If we strengthen our backs, metaphorically speaking, and develop a spine that's flexible but sturdy, then we risk having a front that's soft and open. How can we give and accept care with strong back, soft front compassion, moving past fear into a place of genuine tenderness. I believe it comes about when we can be truly transparent, seeing the world clearly, and letting the world see into us. Damn y'all. I realize that was a lot to digest, but just rereading the quote by Brene Brown and then this extended version by Roshi Jones Halifax just manifests the acknowledgement around at least my personal struggle. And I can't imagine that I'm alone in this, 
but articulating emotion, having the shielded armor on both sides. It's like I'm walking around with this strong back, but also a strong front. And looking into the eyes within the images that I saw in Aniston, looking into the images of current day Americans with some of the moments that we've had in our current day around the Black Lives Matter movement and brutality and pulling back the Band-Aid, exposing this systemic racism. It just, it, it generates all of these emotions that mainly manifest in anger. And I'm at a loss for words. Um, I, again, I struggle with articulating it. And in no way is my anger anywhere near as close as those who experience it every day. Um, but being raised primarily in the South, our history lessons in school were tainted with a blurred reality, emphasizing history, not hate. And the experiences that we saw in Aniston in 1961 were of the past. But primarily I was raised to see past color. In that past, I, I was raised to see past color and race. And that all humans are created equal. And absolutely they are. Um, but I think using the, the phrase, I don't see color, um, to a degree is just a mask for white privilege. And isn't it just saying, I'm not going to let myself become uncomfortable by thinking of all of the ills society brings to you due to the color of your skin. So I'm just going to dismiss it and tell you to stop talking about it. Especially over these past four years, you can just sense our country has become so divided and we've lost the ability to have a civil discourse on a topic in a conversation that is so painful and angers so many of us. So prior to leaving Aniston, I stopped at a local saloon that uh, once covered for a brothel and met a gentleman there by the name of Bruce, whose older brother in Alabama Knights KKK gathered at the Greyhound station on May 14th. And while Bruce's brother passed on his beliefs around segregation to his children, and his grandchildren, Bruce said, you know, that day, I believe he was a, a early teens, but that day rocked him to the point where he spent a lot of his life addressing, advocating, and pursuing equality that does not ignore the past, but uses it for a tool of change that looks to have open conversations transparent, compassionate conversations with folks who still are of the mindset that segregation should still be law of the land. And, you know, 1961 may seem like the distant past, but many of those folks who are of the impressionable age are now in their late 60s, 70s, and 80s with children and grandchildren of their own. 
but there was something that really struck me with my conversation with Bruce when he was telling me about his brother and his last couple of years of life. I believe he was in a, a nursing home or a rehab center, and he had a charge nurse who was a black woman. And over the course of those two years, he had his armor and his his certain mentality to start with, but they ultimately became friends and he realized the the pain that he caused so many people over the years. And there's just something about what happens in our lives when we actually put down the armor in the front that's that's shielding us. And when Bruce had these conversations with his brother, one of the things his brother mentioned was when he was in his late teens and feeling very lost, the KKK gave him a community. They gave him a place to go. And so many of us are just longing in life for a community to fit in and to belong. And it's the reason that we join community groups and and teams and organizations. We're human beings and we just long for connection with people. And depending on where you are in your life is going to result in the, the group that you join. There are studies that show why people join cults. Ultimately, again, it's that longing to fit in. It's that longing to feel like you're a part of something greater than yourself. Over the last four years, especially, our country has just become so divided that we're almost to the point where we can't have conversations anymore relating to political discourse. That we've labeled one party one thing and another party another thing and there's no middle ground and a lot of the folks who either go to the extremist side of either party are simply looking for a community and the the past four years it's torn apart relationships it's friendships families all over politics you know politics has become deeply personal for some people understandably so um mainly those who belong or identify with a group that has been systematically oppressed for decades and this past four years the the, it's it's like there's been an okay that all of the hate and the vitriol can come out and there's no recourse to it and people are angry and understandably people are angry um you know i know a lot of folks that support or have been lifelong Republicans who support Donald Trump, and we've labeled that party a party of of racists. And the people that I know personally, I know in their hearts, they aren't racist. They aren't hateful people. They're voting for a party and a person whose policy and economics align with what they believe to be in the best interest of their family. And some of the policies around social issues and social causes, if they don't have a direct impact on their lives, it does not weigh heavily on them in their decision. And that's really hard to understand at times when those issues are personally important to you. Again, going back to if we constantly have this shield up and we don't take the time to understand where they're coming from, we never will. And this divide and discourse will never end. 
And we don't have to convince them and we don't have to agree to them. It's just a matter of trying to find a place to understand them. But my conversations with Bruce and him being an early teenager um, in Anniston, Alabama in 1961 took immense courage on his part. But here's the thing is, you know, I don't, I don't agree. I don't have the same beliefs as a lot of people that align themselves with our current, you know, Republican party or support for Donald Trump or even the candidates in Georgia. But, you know, I'm reminded by, you know, Brene Brown's saying of strong, strong back, soft front, wild heart, that unless I soften my front, unless I put down the armor that is weighing me, weighing me down, I'm never going to understand. And I think that's what's holding our country back is we're not willing to try to understand or see the point of view of someone who we don't agree with. We're so just, I think, angry and rightfully so we're angry, but that anger is not allowing us to articulate and that anger is keeping up this armor that is disabling our ability to be vulnerable and have these hard conversations. You know, we've lost the ability, I think, as a general society to have civil discourse and conversation around really challenging and hard conversations. You know, I am guilty of this, of labeling folks who support a candidate or not. And that's not right. And I, it's, but it's hard, it's hard for me to have those conversations, but it's something, you know, that, that talking to Bruce, he was able to have many years down the road with his older brother before he passed away to try to understand his views and his ideology. And it ultimately came down to this vulnerability and feeling the need to belong and to belong in a group that welcomes you. It may not be the group that's on the right side of history. It may not be the group that is loving or peaceful or inclusive. But until we can put down this armor and have these conversations, we're never going to be able to progress as a society. And I realize this took a a pretty political turn, but given you know, this past year in general, today, the attack on our nation's capital uh, by fellow Americans, and really thinking about my conversation with Bruce and and my visit to Aniston, it just really made me think about, in general, how we as a society and we as, as individuals walk every day constantly with this shield and this armor on our front and what it is stripping us of the opportunity to learn and grow and form connection with people and sometimes it takes two folks with their armor and their shield down opening themselves to vulnerability that may not see eye to eye but can at least have a conversation of compassion to understand where they're coming from when we're born, we're not born with hate. We're not born with meanness. You know, there are studies that show children through the years and how they start to see differences. But 
it's all about our environment. It's all about the community that we surround ourselves with. It's all about this yearning to belong. And sometimes you find a community that welcomes you, that is loving, that is progressive, that is nurturing, and that, for lack of better words, is on the right side of history. And sometimes you find a community that is not, but it still welcomes you and it still loves you. And really, at the end of the day, that's all we're looking for as humans. In an effort to better articulate the emotions and the feelings that I have, it all comes down to softening the front and willing to learn and grow and hear the opinions of others that we may not agree with. But we're coming from a place of compassion and empathy and a willingness to listen. So thank you all so much for listening to this week's podcast. If you are not already subscribed to the newsletter, head on over to the website, www.thiscavulife.com. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and you can keep up with what's going on with my journeys as I am getting closer to hitting the road. And until next week, keep on living that journey of the unbound soul.